All right, it's recording now, Sharice. Good afternoon. How's it going? This is a, a rare occurrence. You mean recording in the middle of the day with five other people in the office? Yeah. Quiet on set, guys. That's kind of lame. Really I don't know sorry. why I said that. That's kind of corny. Y- you are corny. Whoa, you, you whoa. Just, <laughs> you just wrote on your Instagram, new year, new gear, which is the, which is a corny marketing line. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll take it. We are, in fact, using new gear, though. Wow, this is that's the most organic advertising we're gonna do. We have a new recorder. We have a Zoom H6, which I'm pleasantly surprised. All right, doors. I'm in the middle of a deep thought, and then the doorbell rings. I'll have to keep that in there. Thanks, Chris. H6. H6, which I'm pleasantly surprised has four XLR outputs. I'm to be honest, we probably should run this from like a proper audio interface, but this is convenient. And allows us to sit at the couch. So, and then, yeah. Oh, and then we're also using these uh, Shure SM7Bs, which we had a guest in the office earlier and he was, how do I say this? I had something that I would have said had I not been recorded. Should I say it anyways? No. Okay. Okay, fine. Wow. Off, Off your game today? No, but I want to say it. It's just, it's probably rude. Yeah, so you shouldn't say it. Okay. How would you describe how they were dialoguing over the mics? They were a fan of it. That is so politically correct. Anyways, fine. You know me. You take it. All right. You know what? For the sake of transparency, these were gifts from Sure. (laughs) I have to say that because I'm a big advocacy for transparency. I mean, also, there are going to be many images and a video of you coming out with you using Sure mics. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I guess I should preface why... We sort of, Alex and I were in LA, we had a very sort of unique experience because traditionally we're the ones that are behind behind the the camera and behind the camera. Well, I guess, yeah. Right. Behind the camera is probably a better way. Not in the spotlight. And then for this instance, we were in fact in front where we were just doing some stories and basically hit us up and like, hey, we want to look into your process of creating audio stories. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. Be honest, and we worked with some really cool guys from London. Shout out to Pro and Jake, as well as the sound guy David. That's pretty. It was honestly like probably what you would call a dream team. Yes, that wasn't what I was gonna say. I was gonna say dream production, but dream team sounds probably just as good. I mean, it was kind of cool. You guys will probably need to wait a few months to see it. I'm uh, kind of dreading seeing myself on camera. I mean, this is not your first time being interviewed. Or having photos published of yourself. You just don't you don't look back at it, you know? It's fine. How are things with you? I watched Black Panther last week and I talked to you about it already. And I wrote about it for the briefing, but just wanted to shout it out again. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Actually, but what I did want to mention to you in conjunction to it, which is not even specifically related to the movie as in the plot line, but is the media surrounding Black Panther because I've seen some criticism of the fact that a lot of publications are kind of looking for negative stories. Oh, really? Yeah. Like trying to find, like I saw this one in The Guardian, which was about, oh, you you shouldn't expect Black Panther to be resistance. Like, like watching Black Panther is not equivalent to being part of a resistance movement. Mm-hmm. But I felt like the entire premise was inaccurate because I don't think I have not seen people trying to do that, like trying to put it in that light. Yeah. So the essay seems to be like trying to 
pick a fight yeah, in a yeah. way. And I've have actually seen several other similar articles and there were just people commenting on how it's like publications just can't let a good thing be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's, I haven't seen it, but everyone I've talked to generally has had a really good sort of experience with the movie. Yeah. I highly recommend it. So one of our friends, Jonathan J. Lee, mm-hmm. he, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up, but he's actually a comic book artist for a big studio. Do you know which one it is? Nope. Okay. Then I'm not going to, Let's not not try. Yeah. Anyways, he like loved it. And I also think that the reason why he enjoyed it so much was not even because it's sort of an adaptation of a comic book so much as it is just a social commentary. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say that I've heard a lot of movies in the past year that have been embraced for that exact reason. One that it's been likened to for good reason is Get Out, um, directed by Jordan Peele. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it is, the criticism is similar. Like the commentary is similar. Done differently, right? Horror vs, you know, big action flick. While I don't agree that, you know, watching Black Panther get out is equivalent to going to a protest or being part of a resistance movement, it is, it's more enlightening to you as an individual yeah. to watch these movies yeah. vs some others. All right, okay. Charisse, what is the topic today? So I wanted to talk about how Asian American identity has shifted in past couple years and also just the history of the establishment of Asian American identity. And actually the essay that I want to talk about was not included in the briefing because I found it post the briefing going out. But we did mention a New Yorker article last week that was about Chloe Kim and Kim Yo-jong. That was about how Asian American women were perceived during the Olympics and the Olympics coverage. So kind of piggybacking off of that essay is my excuse for bringing up this other essay. Before you jump into it, can I ask a question that's slightly off base? Sure, go for it. So my question to you is, obviously we're both Asian. What value does this topic have and what you plan to talk about? How does it have value to everybody? And the reason why I bring this up, because I personally have always wondered about the value of this dialogue, because I also feel like the racialization of it is something I don't know how to approach properly. And I don't know what the value, like I feel it becomes, is it become niche? I don't know. Like I, I don't, I can't even, I can't even necessarily communicate and or articulate what I'm feeling, but I just kind of feel like, hey, you know what, what is the value of this discussion for people that are not Asian? This is actually was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about what is the usefulness of hyphenation in titles, right? Like Asian hyphen American, like how come Asians in America cannot just identify as American, especially when they've lived there their whole lives. I think that this topic is important regardless of whether you're Asian or not. One, if you're not Asian, but you are of any group that you consider minority, then it's it's just about identity. Like where do you find identity and is it important to you for knowing who you are to base that off of race in yeah. any way, right? And then if you are not a minority, right? Wherever you're listening to this, right? You could be in Hong Kong and listening to this and be Chinese and therefore in the majority. But anyway, if you are in the majority, I think it is useful to try and imagine how people who aren't you are feeling and also how can I advocate for that? Or is it necessary for me to advocate for these people? 
Got it. So if I, I'm, I'm going to start by just giving an overview of some of the reading sure. for people who might not have read it. So the New Yorker article that we covered last week was by Jia Yang Fan in the New Yorker, and it's called Kim Yo Jong, Chloe Kim, and the Shifting Images of Asian and Asian American Women at the Olympics. And the first half, she talks about how Kim Yo Jong, the younger sister of Kim Jong Un, was quite stereotypically spoken about in U.S. coverage, like falling into both positive and negative tropes that are related to Asian women, such as on the positive air quotes side, like demure, loyal, non-threatening. And then weirdly, there was like this back and forth in media where they flipped from covering her positively to covering her negatively as like a you know tiger woman, yeah. you know, being this aggressive weapon in disguise yeah. um, deployed by North Korea. And then she contrasts the coverage of her to the coverage of Chloe Kim, which the Chloe Kim coverage is interesting to me because it's like, is it possible for media and the public in general to be positive and celebrate her without having to fall into addressing her Asian Americanness? Or is it more productive to mention that fact? Because she she's outstanding regardless of her ethnicity. Correct. Absolutely. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Chloe Kim is a 17-year-old Korean-American who won gold medal in the halfpipe snowboarding during the Winter Olympics and is the first woman to perform back-to-back 1080s. So regardless of ethnicity, she's outstanding as a human being and like doing physical feats that way. But there is a lot of coverage where it's like, Chloe Kim is changing the way we talk about and perceive Asian-Americans in the States. Got it. And I think that there's two ways of looking at it. The media perspective versus, I think it's the underlying agenda of the media. And there's the superficial element of what is the hook? Like what is the quote unquote clickbait side? Because that whole premise could be interchanged with a lot of different things. Like Asians and athletics, definitely not something you would generally associate, right? Which is why that's the hook. Right. But if you were to speak about her normally, right? You would normalize it, which is kind of a good thing in this context. It's just whether or not what is the underlying thing you want to achieve. And if you want to achieve visibility in a click, it's probably going to be... I mean, let's just say this. Oh, Asians are good for more than just math. They can also Mm -hmm, snowboard. mm -hmm. Like that would be a real easy way to sort of, you know, interject that element. Or you could be like, Chloe Kim is... Our generation's greatest, no, that's even not right. But like Chloe Kim is the future of US snowboarding Mm -hmm. or you, you know what I mean? Like there's different ways of looking at it and how you want to apply it. Yeah. And what's interesting to me. So yeah, I agree that there is, there are media outlets who have other interests, right? Like they have their own agendas getting clicks and thinking that clicks are, that they'll get them through certain tactics. But it's also interesting because I've seen in interviews with Chloe, that she herself actually talks a lot about her background, about being the child of immigrants, of feeling like during the Winter Olympics that she was competing to represent both the US and Korea, which is a phenomenon of Asian Americans because she was born and raised in the States. And there is no necessity for her to feel like she represents Korea. I think there is though. 
I think there is. Like a, like a necessity? I think there is a need on the basis of identity because I don't think that she's fully accepted by the American public. I don't think Asian people in general, I, I think all races that are like all visible minorities don't feel necessarily a sense of being embraced by America through and through. Whereas like I think that and to to throw another sort of counterpoint to it, like growing up in Canada, like I never, it was not like I ever was like, hey, I want to go play for China. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it was always like, oh, if that was the dream, I'd be like, hey, let's represent Canada. Because mm-hmm. as a Canadian, you're you're embraced whether you're Sikh, whether you're Chinese, whether you're Latino, whether you're Korean, whatever. And I really think that that is a part of the American fabric. But what you're saying about your own experience is also two-sided. As in, I want to play for Canada, but I also do not feel like they totally accept me. No, 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 no. I disagree. Oh. I feel, I feel like as an ethnic minority, you're definitely, maybe there's still like bouts of racism, but it's by no, by no means to the same level and same level of segregation or just like putting people in the buckets. But earlier you were saying that it was necessary. It's still necessary for Chloe to feel as though she is. Oh, I'm not saying that it's about her feeling that way. I just think that seeing how the landscape is in, in America, mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why there's a sense of sort of embracing your your background more than, I mean, I, I guess beyond Canada, I don't really have a good gauge. But okay. I would just say like knowing their neighbors and knowing they both have similar paths with, you know, multiculturalism and or a lack therefore of it slash immigrant culture. I think they're very different paths. If I was to look at my parents growing up, well, they, I mean, they moved to, they immigrated to Canada when they were, you know, their early 20s, like late teens, early 20s. I don't, I'm trying to think of any sort of negative stories they've ever told me. I mean, they're, nothing ever sticks out like, hey, you know what, like, even growing up in like a small town, in, relatively small town in Canada, it's not like they had some bad shit to talk about, which I don't know, maybe there is. But like, I just feel like in general growing up, like I never felt that same level of division. Okay, so to be clear, what you're saying is that you understand Chloe feeling as though she represents the U.S. and Korea equally because of the current social climate in the States. Yes. And because currently, if you are a visible ethnic minority, there is a feeling in the States that people don't want you there, even if you grew up there your whole life. I think what's also interesting too is like there are kind of these young up and coming football players, soccer players. One of them, I recall he's like younger and he's actually, he was born in the U S but he went and decided to go play for Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an, that's, I mean, I would have to dig deeper into it, but I think that, you know, representing the U S is not a de facto choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand. But do you understand my perspective of the, the way that everything's sort of like, broken off into buckets, which is why, you know, the solidarity of your community, uh, if you're Mexican, if you're Korean, is quite strong. And I think that is what is part of it. Because through thick and thin, I think that community itself is something that probably is, or is more powerful than you might think. I don't disagree with that being the case, but I think that it's interesting. We find it so natural when Because earlier I used the word necessity and I feel like in a future where everyone is supposed to be like mixed race, mixed ethnicity, it's 
interesting to think that you can pick where your allegiance comes from. You can, I, I think it is fine for someone who is Asian American, born and raised in the States to not identify with, um, like if they're Chinese, but grew up in the States their whole life to not identify with Chinese history and to identify with being American and American history. You see what I'm saying? Like, I understand why that Chloe and other athletes would seek out their history, seek out where their families came from. I think it's an interesting burden that we have placed on these mixed culture people to investigate their own history. Is the burden placed on us as fans or just thinking you think in general? I want to, I want to move it to the other essay. Did you end up reading it? No. Okay. So it's. Sorry, I didn't do my homework. No, don't worry about it. It's called the forgotten zine of 1960s Asian American radicals. Oh, you did read it. I looked at it briefly. By, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Jay Lee in topic. And this is fascinating because even though I just said that I don't think that I think it's an interesting burden we've placed on Asian Americans to understand their history. This is, this article is all about history and it's about how in the 1960s, a man named Marase was inspired by seeing black students mourning Malcolm X's assassination and inspired by, from that point, he starts questioning, you know, where do I fit in? I don't totally, even though I understand the civil rights protest, I'm not really part of that group, but I'm also not part of the majority group, right? Like white Caucasian Americans. And he and his friends start this zine called Gidra, which is with essays and poems and illustrations that are about being Asian American and kind of being really brutally honest about the state of things. So it's funny because this essay is all about like the establishment of an Asian American identity at all. Like it wasn't existent before that. But now I question, what is the purpose of having a hardline distinction? Like this is the Asian American identity. Does that serve a purpose? And who are we serving? I think when you're a minority, you're generally looking for community, right? And drawing up those lines is what creates the community. If no one really knows what they stand for or what they should be doing, then it's hard to group them together. And I think it's the grouping which makes people feel better. It's camaraderie, it's community, it's friends and family, it's all those things. So that's why I think that having stuff like this is helpful, especially when you are so uncertain. You come in like, oh man, I don't know what, what I am. And also when you, when you start to define Asian, there's so many countries, there's so yeah. many cultures in there, Yeah. right? And I think that that's kind of where I see the value in it. I was, I mean, I, it was kind of interesting because you posted one quote i mean I, like i said i didn't read the whole thing mm-hmm. you posted one quote and i was like holy that's like i don't know if i agree with that but also now that i think of it more it's like how long ago that was probably was 50, 50 years ago though yeah, i mean it's a different time 50 60 years ago yeah got me thinking like maybe they need to be that abrasive to be heard this is another thing too it's like i just don't feel like we're creating meaningful dialogue when we start hitting each other against each other. Yeah, I mean, that's part of why... Which is my current worry, I think, with all this racialization of things. Like, I think Macon in general tries to be very open to all voices. Like, it's not like, hey, you know what? Let's let's skew towards all 
minorities. Like if there's a good story, it's a good story. Right, right. I mean, that's that is the reason behind my question of what is the purpose of establishing Asian Americanness and who are we serving by establishing that? Because I wonder if even when we are celebrating Asian Americanness, we are still creating a division. I'm not totally firm on that. Like I'm still working through it. It's but you think you're creating a division for everyone else outside of that. Which yeah. I think I would almost argue that dependent on it, when you're I think that people will feel threatened when that time comes in terms of, hey, you know what, like, oh, I feel threatened. That's when it becomes a problem. But I think when you're so comparatively forgotten or or not part of the mm-hmm. major discussion, like this is this discussion is not for everyone else. It's for you mm. and your community. Mm. I mean, we kind of talked about this when we talked about what is the necessity of having women only events, mm-hmm. right? Like does, even though we aren't, those aren't events that are out to put down men, it is still creating a distinction, right? Like there's a parameter yeah. and just the establishment of that parameter is, saying this is the difference, yeah. right? But I guess what you are saying is that in the case of Asian Americans, we're or still any, at a any, stage or any minority, yeah. we're still at a stage where it's necessary to have that celebration of this specific. Because it's internal solidarity you're trying to bring yeah. into the picture. And I also think this is making it even more complicated. But one thing the topic essay talks about is atrocities the U.S. has committed specifically against Asians. And I, I'm not, even though I have lived in the States for an extended period of time, I'm not an American citizen, so I can't know exactly how this feels. But I think about being in a country where you look like the enemy or you look like a historical en- enemy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, that's just, I just thought it was an interesting thought. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to like think about that because... I mean, there's things that happen also in Canada, but I also think that the the mindset was a very specific moment in time. If it reflects the reality of today, then that's an issue. But I think that we sometimes get caught up in the bad actors that become the dominant sort of share of the voice. You focus on bad actors. We all know that. Why are we continually owning in on that? when there are a lot of good stories and good things that are happening and people trying to make a change. It's frustrating and it's it's annoying, but at the end of the day, I think this is something that is either you're about it or you're not, right? Are you about the fight? Are you about wanting to create a better world? Or are you just going to focus on the people that speak the loudest? That's all it comes down to. I and I, I, I actually don't think there's any other element to it beyond that. Like there is no sort of like rationalizing rationalizing what the other side's doing and or trying to convince them. It's like you kind of have to control what you can control. I'm not someone to pick fights and I'm not suggesting that people go out and do that over, you know, things that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I do think it's, this is one of my takeaways from this topic is I do think it's important for myself and for other minority groups to understand what came before, Mm -hmm. even if it isn't going to, even if you decide this is not what I'm going to base my identity off of, and this is not what I am going to even argue with other people about. I think it's 
crucial to yourself. And I, I, I think actually that you would love this because it's about context, right? Yeah. Like understanding the history of things before. I've seen you just pondering for the last 22 minutes, essentially. I mean, it's a big topic for myself personally because it's not the same as being Asian in America, but being Chinese in Hong Kong and English speaking and more American culture than Hong Kong culture, I can understand being from a place and then having other people in that place decide that you don't have ownership here. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing I think about too. And I, someone, I, I remember I was like at Rax, which is like this. I'm not here to save you on your description of Rax. Damon, Damon, I'm going to call it a dive bar, but it's not a dive bar. It's like a pool hall where people just get turned. <laughs> Anyways, it was like 3 a.m. And I remember having a conversation and talking to Jesse actually. And I was like, oh yeah, like I have so many big plans with Macon. And like, you know, I, I really want to have a positive impact within, let's say this, this region, right? Mm -hmm. She was like, Eugene, you have to learn to play the game. And I think that really stuck with me. You know, play the game as in like, you kind of have to embrace the cultural nuances of where you are because if I'm a foreigner and you treat me as a foreigner, then how do I utilize that understanding to play on your field? Because it is your field, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what I took away. And like, if you get treated differently, you have to find a way to maneuver it. That's all it really comes down to. Every time we do a big topic and I pick the big topic, I always wonder, did I express myself accurately? And beyond that, also like, is, did I express exactly how I actually feel on this? So I don't know. The way I look at it is at any given moment in time, you only have so much information, right? You obviously want to put that information out there. I think your personality would not want to withhold something, even if you don't feel like you know the full context or you know exactly how to wrap your head around it, you're still working through it. Actually, something from the Slack community has stuck with me, which is Jeremy Kirkland from the Blamo podcast. Yes. He messaged us to follow up on our is higher education a waste of time topic. Yeah. And he said he's personally like a personal hobby of his is world history and I've been thinking about how useful that hobby is because I feel like I'm constantly learning stuff about the past that I had no idea about that I didn't learn in school and still informs the way I think about things now yeah My topic this week is the tyranny of convenience, which was a very interesting op-ed by Tim Wu. So Tim Wu is a professor at Columbia University and the author of the book, The Attention Merchants. Have you read the book, Eugene? No, this is where you're going to call me out because I told you this before. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. So I love Tim Wu. You've listened to a lot of his podcasts. I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. That's how I first found out about him. I think he's a very enlightening guy. I think his insights are very profound, but the way he ties it back into the way we currently live our lives from a technological standpoint, from a media standpoint, I think it's all very relevant. And there's certain things that he introduces that maybe I was thinking fractionally, 
but he's able to kind of pull it all together and encapsulate it. Sharice is nodding because I think she you came in agrees. yesterday raving I was about. Like, Yo, you gotta this read this op-ed. fucking article. It was like on I'm the pretty spot. sure I and said that. Essentially, you said that, and then I was. I had to read on the spot and you essentially stood over my shoulder and waited till I finished reading it so that we could talk about it. But how'd you feel after? Good. Yeah, it, it was good. pretty, it was pretty on point. All right. Tell um, me what it's about. So yeah, Tell basically his, what it's about. his whole article talks about basically convenience. Mm-hmm. What does convenience mean to us today? What did it mean to us in the past? And how does it define us as people? And it's interesting because it is a bit of a continuation of identity. Yeah, right? definitely. It's, in it's a different weird. way. It's weird how like topics that we, it's like a vibe that, you know, you feel like, hey, let's talk about this thing today. And Something then in the air. it influences. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. So I think that what, what I found very interesting and fascinating over the course of this piece was first he started off with sort of the history behind convenience and how it's sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. one of the most underestimated and least understood forces in the world. And it really drives like human behavior. Yeah. Convenience is critical, right? Like, yeah, that's sort of what defines whether you're going to pick that or you're going to pick this. It's true. We don't really talk about convenience as a motivator. Yeah, exactly. And I think that complex relationship has sort of changed a little bit. Like in the past, I think, you know, let's say, I think he used the, the example of, you know, the 60s. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, convenience was meant as a way to kind of free us from the shackles of labor. So basically... Yeah. As you live a more convenient life day to day, it allows you to work less. And more that was specifically things like a washing machine. Yes. Or a vacuum cleaner, microwave, stuff like that. Yes. Make it make life and work easier. The second wave though is convenience has been there to make yourself and individualism easier, which mm-hmm. is a, v- a very big idea, I think. I had to think a little bit more profoundly about it and exactly what that meant. And then the example that he used was Facebook. So for example, Facebook is a place that we use because it's convenient to keep tabs on our friends and family. But interestingly enough, because of the way it's set up, it strips away identity because everything's sort of placed in this format that Facebook has decided is how you're going to consume the memories and experiences of yourself and others, right? And I think his last parting words within the piece were very, they're pretty, pretty captivating. The constellation of inconvenient choices Maybe all that stands between us and a life of total efficient conformity. Yeah. So I guess to that point, it's there's a lot of interesting things that come into play. It's like, well, what is the impact of impact and importance of individuality, which I think we see as being critical. I think if you look back on the work and listen to some of the things that Tim has said, as, especially as it pertains to the attention economy and I think the efficiency of everything. I think everything in this tech-driven world is based on optimization. Yep. And what do you lose when you optimize every single thing? And oh. I was on his tweet that he shared. And what I found interesting was like, obviously smart people naturally attract intelligent followers or whatever. And you don't think so? Not sure if that's true. I think but, in general. Oh, I, my computer just died. Anyways, okay. so I, I, I looked at that whole thread and there's some interesting things being said. So for example, uh, one person shared this paper called Introducing Procedural Utility. Not only what, but also how matters. So it really talked about how people um, don't only care about outcomes, like the final product, they care about how you arrive there. Uh, What's interesting is that 
I thought about this and actually shared it on my on my Instagram as a poll. And I was wondering, do people care about that these days? It seems like they don't. Like some people care about the process, but a lot of people just want the final product in their hands. Well, this is one of the thoughts I had after reading this is that what Tim Wu is saying, most of us are going to agree with, or that is that was my feeling. Like I agree with this argument. And I agree that there is value in doing a slower process in things that are difficult. And I'm going to say that on the record, but in practice, that's not how we behave. This is just one of those things that as humans, you're going to say, yeah, I'm all about, you know, the getting there is the journey, right? And not just the destination. Like that's not the important part. But when you actually go out and do the thing, you are drawn to the convenient, efficient option. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah, but I so also the poll is not going to be helpful because we're all going to say the thing that we think is true. Yeah, in in your poll, like we would vote that way, but the reality it's not is not the reality of our behavior. I I would say that one thing I have thought about extensively is this isn't a black and white thing. It's not like you drop everything convenient. And you lead a more inconvenient life because you're deriving value from that process or those processes, right? Right. So I wrote about it in the briefing. And that is one of my conclusions is that, and and also I think this is what um, Tim is suggesting is not that you then pick up like, oh, I'm going to go and do carpentry or I'm going to only buy secondhand gadgets. I'm going to fix them and I'll never buy a new gadget again. It's more about like examining what habits have are already like entrenched in your life what is your routine and in what ways has the convenience of that routine, you know, taken away from you? Yeah. But also added. So what I've, what I think is the sort of like area where we should operate is what are things that the monotonous tasks in our lives, like washing your, you know, like a laundry machine, right? How does that free you up to do other things? And how do you recognize that? How do you recognize that, you know, by virtue of me having this done, this element of convenience, I can now think, sit down, think about something else. And I, I, you know, there's another underlying element to this too. Like all these things that we're talking about here, convenience and all that, that's honestly something that only certain people have the luxury of, of questioning, of thinking about. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's like not everyone has, convenience costs money. Right, to take a taxi costs money versus taking public transportation. Not to own always. A car. I think convenience does not always cost you more money, and I'll get into that. But I do agree that taking an Uber costs more money than taking the train. So that's yeah. The thing so that yes, it is a luxury. Some in some aspects, convenience is a luxury of having money, having the resources. But one thing that I'm more fascinated about, which is along the lines of Facebook, is the convenience of personalization and establishing your identity. And I think we have talked about this before, but Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, like actually these are convenient options to consume media. And what do we lose by relying on them? And I'm of the opinion that it is net negative when you rely on your Twitter timeline and Facebook feed to, you know, tell you what to read or tell you what to buy. We couldn't have consumed this or read this story, this op-ed on Twitter or Instagram. It just, you wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I just think that the experience would have been so poor. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's a great point too, is the way we look at our individualism now going forward, where people think they have a sense of identity when in reality, it's just the the facade is the same and the underlying elements are actually 
the same, even though you are lured into a false sense of security mm-hmm. as it pertains to your identity. I don't know. I think that's something that trying to, trying to, I, honestly, that's part of the part about the whole op-ed that I'm trying to wrap my head around the most and its ramifications going forward. Cause I think there is a sense of stripping away where people are finding, how can I really create a sense of individualism in the face of a lack of different variables? Because mm-hmm. the content itself, right? That's why people go and share experiences because experiences are now the defining factor. I'm just being real. You and I, we're not likely to go out and add inconvenience to our lives in ways related to physical labor. I'm not about to start hand washing my clothes. Okay. You're, yeah, I, I see it. Right. I mean, I would take the stairs nine times out of the 10 then take the escalator. Okay. As an example. Fine. That's still like, honestly, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm so proud of myself because I did that. But Or like, you're still going to use your vacuum cleaner. Right. So when I think about what the ramifications of this op-ed are, it's about do I let other people, do I let things like the tech services I use be my sources of information? Or do I try to go out and find information through more firsthand ways? And my example is not particularly relevant to you, but I think it will be relevant to other people is um, instead of relying on, you know, Beats One or Selection or generated Spotify playlists, how do I find artists on my own? How do I find new music that's not something on a chart? And that's like no necessity, but I think it's part of establishing. Yeah who you are. Yeah, I think music is the one place of pushback where people have sort of recognized that in general, they're not content with what they're being served, right? Whereas like, I don't think it's the same. You know, I think actually people get excited about their Instagram Explore page. I'm giving Eugene a look right now. I mean, some people just get lost in it. I've heard maybe neutral to positive Reactions okay, to- I pres- one thing that I'm definitely going to do and that I admire you for doing is getting back on the RSS reader habit instead of just letting things come to me whenever they come to me. Yeah. Well, I don't even really like the RSS either. I, I maybe I don't. I honestly don't even really like RSS that much. But it's either. more real to actually dive through and a full archive of something. Yeah. Than to just let like top ten lists. Reach you. True. Yeah. I mean, the, or like just looking through a, what is most popular because that's just like what the masses have read, which is not to say yeah. that those are bad articles, but just like maybe there's something that's been overlooked. Yeah. That you didn't even get the chance to decide, do I like this or not? Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the, the, the positive part about RSS is like that full archive and you can go through it. I have trimmed down my RSS over the years. And I think, which kind of, what kind of sucks is that the, What's left over is it's very, it's almost entirely focused on larger publishers, which doesn't make sense because if you're a smaller publisher, then I mean, I only, I only get notified when you publish new things, right? Mm-hmm. But I think maybe it's just, there's a rare quality that is missing. I do have a question for you about the Tim Wu op-ed as a whole. Um, do you think it's a self-help piece? Oh, that's a good point. I think it's in part self-help, but I also think that in general, like the way it's been applied is more commentary that could tip into a self-help piece. But I think regardless, like what he has said there, I think anyone that reads that or whoever is reading that piece, I don't think that everything in there is entirely new. I think there's 
depending on what part of that you relate to, I think that I think some idea or notion there was pre-existing. I don't think everything in there is revelational. If you've lived sort of a digital life for the last however many years, like some part of that speaks to you. And I think we talked about this before. It's like everything he said in there, it's not that it's out of left field. It's like, yeah, it's all. It's articulation of something you probably thought about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But then again, I think the part about mass individualization, I think that's the part that probably stuck with me the most. And the one that probably I'm going to continually think about more and more because everything else was crystal clear. Okay. So it's sort of that part that I kind of need to understand a bit Like how tech services purportedly are about individualization, but are really mass. Yeah. On a mass level, they're doing that, which is not really individualization. Good place to wrap things up for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can check us out at Macon.com, where you can also listen and read to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. Wow, you actually did that all by memory. I have said it 36 times now. Anyways. So I have committed it to memory. Anyways, thanks to Gordon for editing this. This is his first time. You, you have you have still not committed your bit to memory. No. You All right. Here I am reading. Make me feel bad. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, do us a big favor and review us on iTunes or share this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>